0: Hello and welcome back to Change It with me, Eloise Seidlin. This week, I have the well-known and incredibly inspirational Michelle Givings on the show. Michelle is heartwarmingly down to earth, sharing her successful journey through very senior corporate roles across divisions into launching her own company. She shares how change was fundamental in helping her transfer across role types the one piece of advice that helped her through her first year launching her own company. She talks us through her three books, Next Step, Career Leap, and Bad Boss, and a turning point in her career that came from self-care practices. Michelle is someone I've known for many years. She's coached and been such an approachable sounding board. Her story is a brilliant one, and we have such a laugh on this episode. Recorded pre-lockdown when we had lots of plans. Michelle really reminds me that motivation comes from starting. And in times like this, where you might be feeling a bit lacklustre, she reminds us that picking up the book is part of finishing it. Don't set out for the end goal, but just start the process. This one could not have come at a better time for me to remind myself that doing a little bit each day is okay. Enjoy. Well welcome Michelle Gibbings to episode number 11 of oh, no. I was going to say I've
1: known you for many years and
0: it's so delighted to be on your program. Oh it's such an honor to have you and I know how busy you've been with Dare to Lead, your facilitation and, and Step Up, um, the Influence program. I'm really keen to speak to you about a whole plethora of things today but For listeners that don't know you as well as I do, would you be able to provide a bit of an insight into who you are and what you do? So I am
1: a workplace expert, which essentially means I work with leaders, with teams, with individuals on many aspects of what do you do to create healthy, thriving workplaces. So I run training programs. I facilitate team sessions. I do one-on-one executive coaching and um, you know, in my spare time, I write books and do a bit of media work. And generally it's all about for me, you know, I love learning. And so I think I, I learn a lot. And then really what I'm doing is sharing that with other people, because my focus is really helping people, you know, find the best of themselves so that they can then be the best in the work environment. And so, you know, I always say if you've got a happy, healthy, thriving workplace. You just get more done. Everyone's happy. Things just chug along, and it's a nice environment to work in. And that's what I I try to help with.
0: And it's an amazing journey that you've had to get to the point that you are at now, Michelle. And I'm quite keen, as someone that has known you for quite some time, you've you've coached me a lot, and you've given me some really good advice, particularly when I was first starting and the recruitment world, which I've relayed and used many times, but I'm really keen to hear about that journey, that because it is quite an unusual path, and it's it's testament to the person that you are. But you've used um, some soft skill sets to land some very big roles. Um, uh, yeah, what was that like?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, I um <laughs> once um many years ago, one of my girlfriends said to me. Michelle, your career terrifies me. And I said, why? And she said, because you make these seemingly random jumps into jobs that you know nothing about. And I said, that's really interesting. And then I realized she was looking at it purely through a technical lens and going, you don't have the technical skills for that role. Whereas I was looking at it much more through the lens of you know, leadership, behavioral, those ability to be able to connect, influence, strategize, problem solve. And, you know, when you get to a certain point in your career, it's those skills that become more important than your technical skills. And so if you think about it through your career, often your first job, you're hired because you've got certain technical skills. You know, you've gone to university, you get a qualification, you've done some sort of form of trade, you get a qualification that gets you into the market. But then as you progress through your career, it's all of those other skills that you develop and that you learn on the job about how to connect, how to engage, how to lead, how to influence, they start to become the differentiator. And that's certainly what I found through my career. And I was you know, often in situations where I was very fortunate because I had people who backed me and were willing to take a risk on me because it was like, you know, Michelle, we know you haven't done this before, but we know that you build good teams and we trust your ability to be able to sort out whatever is going on in this team to actually turn it into a healthy functioning team. And I guess I was never really scared of taking a risk. And when I say that, that was not didn't mean I didn't have fear. So you know, I'd go into the into the role going, oh, I don't know whether I'm gonna be able to pull this off, but I always knew that if I if there wasn't some sense of risk, if there wasn't some sense of almost fear attached to accepting the role. I wasn't pushing myself hard enough.
0: Mm, That's really interesting. And to what part do you think, because at at some degree there, what you're talking about is a very transferable skill set, a soft skill set that you had, which you'd built and acquired over time. To what part do you think your change journey or your your change profession, sorry, set you up with those soft skill sets? And to what part do you think it was inherently who you are, Michelle?
1: I always come from the... Almost always like philosophy. I'm a learner. You know, I would say, you know, I'm the nerd, you know, get me the t-shirt. I'm a nerd. I love learning. And so I have never seen, or there was never a role that I would have where I'd go, Oh, that's a waste of time. I'm not learning something. I would always be looking to learn and learn more. And once I got to a point where I felt like I couldn't learn anything more in the role, then I'd be ready to move on to something else. And so, you know, when I look at the change, um, People who work in change roles they often have come um, from different backgrounds have quite broad skill sets and if you can match that up with an understanding of the business and how the business runs then there are so many things that you can go and do and you know you know i've worked in compliance roles i've worked in risk i've worked in strategy roles but i also what underpins all of that as well is a genuine interest in the business and helping the business that i was working for succeed And so I think that's the key part as well. You need the understanding of what it is that you're doing. You need all of those soft skills, but I also think you need to understand how the business ticks. And where I see people struggle is they might focus on the technical side, they might focus on the soft side, but they don't actually focus on that business piece. And if you don't understand how the business, how it runs, how it makes money, what are its competitive advantage, who are, where's the market going, becomes very hard. Because then when you're sitting around the table with key stakeholders. You can't talk their language. You can talk your language, but you can't talk the language of the business. And you need to be able to talk the language of the business because that's what gives you credibility.
0: What's fascinating about your journey, Michelle, is in the current conversation around future of work, which some would argue is is current place. You know, it's no longer future. We are there now, particularly the COVID agenda, which has pushed us forward. What's interesting about your career is that in some part, you have transitioned roles very seamlessly. And with the future of work and the agenda of a transferable skill set, role displacement, you're someone that has chosen to walk that. You've almost displaced your own roles and stepped into completely foreign territories for you um, and done so and, and owned it. Uh, not without a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it looked seamless, but it didn't feel it, probably. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that undermines. <laughs>
1: It's one of those things as well, where um, because I like learning, and I always say to people, if you can fall in love with learning, the change of where the world is going and how your role changes and how your profession changes becomes less scary because it's just something more to learn. Whereas if you see learning as boring, a waste of time, difficult, you're then putting up that kind of the mental shutter. And so it becomes much harder because you're being dragged to the change as opposed to going being ahead of the change. And I think if you're ahead of the curve and you're at one step ahead of everybody else in terms of seeing where the market is going, that becomes part of your competitive advantage because you're skilled up, ready to go while everyone else is still figuring out what to do.
0: And. So talk us through then where you went from there. You, you had a journey through corporate in some very, very senior roles, leading large teams and some very well-known brands. At what point did you go, right, I'm going to branch out under my own brand now and launch my own business?
1: My last corporate role probably wasn't what I'd classify as fun. it's interesting i say that with a bit of a laugh because you know i've had some very very tough roles and i often think you learn a lot from the roles that are really tough but this was not an environment that brought out my best and you know at the time it was a really tough decision to work through and go you know i've been here for 10 months but this isn't for me and i need to i need to be somewhere else and so i orchestrated an exit i left i didn't know what i was going to do and I naturally assumed, you know, I'm a corporate chick. I know how the corporate world works. That's where I've always been successful. I'll go off and do, you know, another corporate role. And I went on a meditation retreat and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, five days by myself. And it was in that moment that I, it was almost like this epiphany where I thought, I love learning. I will always love learning and I love being challenged, but I need autonomy. And the only way I'll get autonomy is to go and work for myself. And I still remember, because um, I was living in Sydney at the time, and I came home and I said to my husband, Craig, I said, Oh, I'm done. And the guy goes, Done with what? And I said, Done with corporate. And he goes, Oh, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to open a business. And he goes, Fabulous in what? And I said, I've got no idea. <laughs> um, and so, look, you know, that was seven years ago. So I've obviously. Figure out what it is that I do, but I really didn't know. I had, and because I'd had such a varied background, trying to figure out what to do was actually hard. Because, well, you know, do I go and work in risk and compliance? Do I go and do a change role? Do I go and do a strategy role? You know, I'd done some stuff in politics and corporate affairs. Do I go back to that sort of government relations sort of environment? And the best piece of advice I got from my then financial planner, which is interesting, and he said to me, you've never run a business before, so you really don't know what this is going to be like. He said, don't say no to anything. He said, in your first year, just experiment and say yes to whatever comes through and be open to the opportunities. And that was really good advice because it meant I didn't lock in too early. And, you know, if you watch the iteration of the business the business has iterated over those seven years to get much clearer in terms of the exact space and domain in which i'm working and you know that takes time it takes reflection um and you know there's obviously not trial and error but there is that sense that you have to experiment with things be willing to put stuff out to the market see if that works and if it doesn't work just change keep going
0: Wow. So it's been a seven-year iteration. It's been an evolution. And a lot of the time, you've kept a strong brand throughout that, haven't you, to market a very good, consistent... Well, I think so.
1: Although you would say that the the brand has been refined. You know, in my early days, it was much more focused around change. And yes, everything I do is still couched in the context of change. Um, But I don't refer to myself as a change leadership expert. I talk about a workplace expert. And the reason I broadened it to workplace is because I do so much work around career coaching. I do a lot of leadership work. I do culture work. And so I needed to broaden it so that it was more accurately representing what it is that I'm actually doing.
0: Amazing. And so at what point then, Michelle, from there, through that year, um, having sought some good advice from your financial planner it's very interesting um did you go I'm going to write a book because p- particularly um, in my seat I speak to people who are thinking about writing a book and they talk about it being a period of real self-doubt and it's very hard your first book particularly you kind of go through this like oh um when did that happen to you and what was that like for you it was step up wasn't it your first book
1: it is. And look, I absolutely concur. I think the first time you write, look, you know, I, I've got a corporate comms background. So writing for me was not hard. I like writing. I think the bit that becomes harder is the, oh, wow, I'm an author. And, you know, it, but in the back of your head, you're going, well, you're not. You're just Michelle. And so I think it's the, it's almost like this identity piece. And that's what I found really interesting, particularly over the first couple of years, is that identity shift where you're going from being a corporate person to what is it you, you know, are you a business person? Someone said to me, oh, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not building apps and developing, you know, new technology. So what's your identity? And I think that's a thing that starts to shift as you start writing. And certainly I know when I put out my first book, my publisher said to me, oh, you must feel really excited. You know, it's hitting the market. And I said, no, I feel like I'm going to vomit. And she went, okay, interesting. She goes, I haven't quite had that as a reaction before. And I said, I am waiting for all those people that I used to work with in corporate to judge me and to say, you're a failure. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to the second book, you're kind of completely over that because you're like, it doesn't Mm
0: -hmm.
1: matter. What I found with writing the book, though, the book really helps to clarify your ideas. And the book also, from a positioning perspective, really helped to cement that shift from, I'm not just this person who used to work in corporate, I actually do have ideas and I have good ideas and I know how those ideas can help people. And that was the key thing for me because the influence book was very much based on my experience, both in a change role, but also when I moved into the head of compliance role, because in those roles, so much of your success is based on your ability to be able to influence. And you would know this from the work that you do. You know, it's really great to be able to develop a change plan and, you know, awesome to do business impact assessments and org design. But it means nothing if you can't influence the right stakeholders because you got the document, they're not going to read it. Or you need to understand how do you pitch it in terms that they can understand. And that's what the first book was very much about, was helping people shift that sense of focus so I'm not just focusing on what it is that I do but how do I make sure that I'm influencing the right people through the conversations to get good outcomes?
0: In the current conversations that I've been having I spoke to Michael Predis from Fathom on workforce of the future and I've also spoken to performance psychologist Jamil Qureshi and they had quite opposing views in the sense that Uh, Michael comes at workforce of the future and transformation from a standpoint of data will inform everything we do and those that can bring data to life will help move um, the conversation forward. And Jamil says, well, actually, it's about being able to tell a really good story. So there is an alignment somewhere there, but he says it's not so much about the data because it's emotion trumping reason. And what you're saying there really is the power to influence comes from that story, doesn't it? It's not handing over a deck, a slideshow, a, um, an Excel spreadsheet. It's actually how you you tell a story and relay the data.
1: It is. It is. And also it's about credibility. So if you think about it, we as humans, we love to think that we don't judge, but we do we constantly, we're constantly assessing and judging. Is something good for me? Is something bad for me? What is this person's intent towards me? And so when you're dealing with stakeholders, yet you need data because data helps you tell a story. That's all data is. The key when you're working with stakeholders is actually to help them see that story because sometimes data can really, if it's too dense, if it's too complicated, people aren't going to see what the story is but we also know that emotions drive how we make decisions. You can have an immediate visceral reaction to someone because of something someone has said, and it can trigger you. And so it's really important when you're pitching messages to understand the audience, understand what their agendas are, understand how they like to process information. And so all of those sorts of factors are going to impact your ability to get heard. So I'd go, you need both. You need the data because it helps inform the story. But the story has to have an emotional connection because that emotional connection piece really matters to help people make decisions.
0: And then underneath that is credibility. You're absolutely right. Because if you do that from the wrong level and you're, yeah, you're m- misfiring them. Interesting. And so from Step Up to your latest book, Bad Boss, I've got Step Up and Career Leap. I'm, Bad Boss is actually on my reading list. Um, I do want to speak a bit about them because my husband has used career leap significantly. But I'm curious, talk about that kind of journey from you know what the three books are and how they intertwine and, and where you're at now.
1: Um, it's interesting. I had someone who said to me, "I'm oh, Michelle, I think you've written in the, them in the wrong order because so people need to read bad boss first, because then they can work out if they have a bad boss and they hate their their job and it's not going to change then they use career leap to actually get out and then they can use step up in their new organization to be successful and i said well i don't think it quite works like that but hey you know if that works for you go for it so because step up as my first book was very much about that understanding of the balance between the technical and the softer skills the career leap the genesis for that was really my own career journey and the fact that i had Lots of people say to me, how have you done this? You seem to have been able to, not just once, but multiple times through your career, completely reinvent yourself. Help me do it. And so I had been doing work with people one on one. And then I thought, what a great topic for my second book. And it, you know, really did fit at that point. And, you know, we're still seeing it now, that whole sense of the future of work and we know that work is changing. So the Career Lead book is very much about how do you take charge of your career? How do you become the leader of your career? So you're not waiting for the organisation to develop you. You're not waiting for the organisation to give you permission to to work out what comes next. You're always making the deliberate decisions that you need to make to push yourself forward. Um, And then the third book, it was kind of came as a conversation from my brother in law because he said to me, oh, Michelle, I've got the title for your next book." And I said, "Oh, okay. What's that?" He goes, "Bastard bosses." And I said, "Oh, okay." He goes, "Oh, everyone's worked for a bastard." He goes, "It'll be a bestseller."
0: That's quite an Aussie way of putting things. That would never, that would never fly in the UK. I tell you. Well, isn't it interesting? Because my
1: publishers said the same thing. Yeah, we can do bad, Michelle, but we're not doing bastard. It feels just a bit too raw. Um, but what I also then reflected on is through the exec coaching work that I do and also the teamwork that I do, I very rarely get people who come to me and go, Michelle, everything's perfect. It's awesome. It's perfect. Yeah, They're coming to you because there's something that's not working. But they look at their own behaviour. It's, oh, it's not working because of these people mm. or those people. And what Bad Boss is about is it's really saying everybody needs to take accountability. For the part that they're playing in the relationship and yes look there are bosses out there who are you know narcissistic and toxic but there are things that you can do to manage the situation for you so you play the part that you can play but also you make assessments as you go through if this really isn't working what are the options that you might have to do something that's different um, but also sometimes seek long term because you know i've worked with some really tough bosses and I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't gone through that situation. And, and one in particular it was really, really unpleasant. But it's, I learned so much on so many levels. And I don't look back and go, I enjoyed it. But I look back and go, it was pivotal in helping me be where I am now. So from that perspective, it was worth it. Um, And so the reason it's got sort of three sections in the book is it is designed for you to read if you're the boss, if you're the boss's boss, and if you're on the employee. And for some people, they're actually in all three, um, you know, they can read it through those three lenses because they actually hold all three roles. And so it really is encouraging people, play your part, see what you can do to shift the dynamic rather than making it all about the other person.
0: What timing to launch a book like that? Because last year, what we saw in in COVID is the emphasis on leadership and this real gap where the emphasis hasn't been probably for the last five years, maybe more, certainly within my career on upskilling leaders and that training and the the leader playing a pivotal role. And that, that role has changed somewhat from being a subject matter expert to being more of a facilitator and guider. So very interesting. Have you seen a lot of people kind of coming to the forefront with really good feedback and, you know, with a desire for this from COVID? Is that where it came from? How was it born? Uh, So, well, it
1: was born before COVID. And so it was interesting because it was written in a different context. And that's the interesting thing because, you know, the publishing cycle is, is a year. We were meant to be launching in May. And when COVID hit in March, this was last year, when COVID hit in March, we pushed the release date to September because that just worked in better with what was sort of going on in the world and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote it pre-pandemic. And I think what I've seen through the pandemic is, you know, good leaders really shine in times of crisis. I am seeing far more recognition within organisations of the importance of mental health and well-being and self care. And I think that is so, such a good step forward. We're seeing it with you know, a number of organizations who are running sessions for their team about burnout and how do you make sure you're resilient and how do you take care of yourself? You know, four or five years ago, we were not having those types of conversations. And I think they're such critical conversations because they actually go hand in hand with the future of work because When work changes people can feel stressed and uncertain by that if you are training and developing people to actually recognize their own trigger points and their own kind of the things that can trigger them feeling uncertain and uncomfortable and then give them the tools that they can use to self-manage and self-help you know you're creating a healthier stronger more vibrant workforce
0: and I think it's really uh, useful that what you provide within Bad Bosses is, is the three layers so that people can self-evaluate and go through this checklist of, hey, is it me? You know, is it me not being accountable and pointing the finger? Because it's probably a lot easier to do that, to blame someone else. It's basically, it's almost
1: like human, so, you know, basic psychology is we, it's easier, it makes us feel good. If if it's about somebody else, it's far harder to actually go, well, this is me. And what have I, what part have I played in all of this? And, you know, if I go back through my corporate days, I would often see this when I would come into teams because you come into a team environment and often the leader who was moving on to their next role would want to give you an assessment as to how they rated the members of the team. And I invariably found that their assessment of the team would often be very different to my assessment. And that's because different leaders bring out different aspects of people. And so I think that's the really hard thing is that often we can look at someone and go, oh, you know, they're not very good, they're not effective. But what are you doing as a leader? Because perhaps you're not bringing out the best in them. That working relationship doesn't necessarily work for them as perhaps as well as a, as a previous working relationship. You know we come into relationships with assumptions and expectations about how things should work. And the really critical thing for both the leader and the employee is to go, well, how do I suspend my expectations and and judgment, making sure that I'm fair to them and also fair to me.
0: Mm. What's interesting, which you might be able to shed some light on for me, is that in my career, I, I had a mentor who wasn't someone I asked to be a mentor, but through our very good working relationship, became an informal mentor to me. And one of the pieces of advice she gave to me, which has stuck with me, Michelle, is that if in life you find yourself reporting into a leader that can't support you or isn't adding value to you, seek out another leader, find your person within an organization. And so I've always found that to be really useful. Do you think that, you know, that applies. Would you agree with that? I think we find mentors in
1: many different parts of the society and who we connect with and engage with. And so it's interesting to sit back and go, well, what am I expecting from my leader? And is what I'm expecting from my leader fair? Like, can they actually do that? Because they might have other things that they can do that make them a nice person and a great person to work for, but you're not going to necessarily get the leadership that you want from them. And if I go back through my um, very early career, I worked with someone, lovely guy, really nice guy, off the charts, disorganised. So from a leadership perspective, he didn't lead because he was so focused on the detail and the precise area in which he was really interested in. And that then meant a whole heap of other stuff that didn't happen. For me, that created an opportunity for me to step up, do more leading, fill the void. Now, there would be people who would say, but Michelle, it wasn't your role. Why were you doing that? And I said, yes, it wasn't my role, but it made my life easier. It also made my role more interesting and it got me noticed. Because more senior people were like, oh, wow, look at all this stuff that gets done because Michelle's there. And they knew that it was me doing the work and not him. I didn't need to seek the credit for it because everybody knew that that's what was going on. I then got tapped on the shoulder and promoted. Now, I wasn't doing that to sidestep him or make him look bad, but the work needed to get done. And he was really happy when I moved on as well because you know, he had been, you know, he got what he needed out of the relationship. I got what I needed out of the relationship. So I think... If you've got people around you who can play that strong sponsorship and mentoring role, that's fantastic. And they don't need to know that that's the role they're playing. Like I often find we want to label something. You don't need to label it. You don't need to tell them that they're playing that mentoring or sponsorship role. If they're doing it and you're getting what you need from the relationship and also you're giving something back to them, then that's fabulous.
0: Mm. and that is an interesting point because cheryl sandberg talks about this i'm reading lean in if you read it yeah she talks about us as females constantly asking for a mentor similar as when we're young being told that we'll marry we'll marry our prince charming it's almost like you will make it in the corporate world if you get a mentor but you're absolutely right that mentor doesn't need to you don't need to marry them as a mentor you you might be getting that without formalizing it and and it might not be from the person that you'd necessarily think would be your mentor either. Absolutely. I think you formalize it. Sometimes that puts too much pressure on the person who's the mentor, because if they
1: kind of feel like, oh, this all feels really formal, and what are my expectations? As opposed to going, you just have this. You know, I talk about having your career advisory board. So who's your who's on your board? Who do you go to for various things? Because there are different people who have different aspects of knowledge that you can learn from and that you can help and they can help you. And I think that's the most important thing is to remember the sort of the reciprocity because it's not just about taking what is it that you're giving into your network as well.
0: One of the other key things that when I saw your your latest bit bad boss, I, I, I thought of was myself going through a journey and in, in recruitment, you get to a point where, you know, you're unconsciously incompetent and you go through and you get to a point where people go, well, hey, you've nailed the delivery to some part, not nailed, but you can do the delivery. And so therefore you ought to now lead. And I don't know whether it's purely a female trait. I I think it's a person trait, but um, a lot of the time people go, I, I don't know if I can lead, you know, is that the next thing for me or do I continue up in this manner? And what advice would you give to someone at that juncture? Because it is a journey I imagine lots of professionals go to. They get to kind of manage a level or, you know, very capable in their role. And then the expectation is, will you lead?
1: I think that's a challenge in terms of how organisations are constructed. Because often to move up, you need to move into a leadership role. The challenge with that is if you don't want to be in a leadership role. Now, you're never going to know that unless you give it a go. So my first piece of encouragement would be, I go, you you just never know. You may actually get in there and love it. You might get in there and go, no, not interested. And I use my husband as a case in point. He has led teams and he now deliberately does not lead teams, not interested. And his organization keeps trying to pull him back into leadership roles. And he's like, no, I'm a subject matter expert. I work in my space. And, you know, he still has to influence lots of people, but he is very happy working in the space that he's working in. So he has deliberately made a choice. Um, And so I think give it a go. And then if you do want to be a leader, recognise that it is a learned skill. I think we have this assumption that you're either good at it or you're not. To me, it is a learned skill. And if you want to be good at it, you invest time and energy learning the craft of leadership because it is a craft. And how you turn up every day, you know, that evolves as you evolve, as you learn about yourself, but also it gets influenced by the culture and the context in which you're operating. But I also think if you don't want to be a leader, find roles where that's okay. You know, because sometimes, you know, particularly in consulting world, you know, there are consulting worlds where they just want people who are really deep subject matter expertise in their role. And that's okay. Um, You know, I'm seeing that some organizations are doing that sort of dual track where they're very clear. You know, There's a sort of an expert track and there's a leadership track, Um, you know, so hunt out those types of organizations. But I think if you don't want to be a leader, then don't do it because it's not fair on the people that you're going to be leading because they'll know that you don't want the job in the leadership aspect because it'll come through in the amount of time that you spend with them because you'll spend more time on the task and less on the people
0: and actually that segues quite nicely not that I know the content all too well but into dare to lead for which you are now qualified facilitator can you talk us through for, for those like myself that that don't know much about the course, what that looks like and how you got into that, how that's been for you?
1: Sure, so Dare to Lead is the Brené Brown program. So Brené Brown is New York Times best-selling author. She's an academic. Um, And the genesis for the Dare to Lead book for her was, she was, you know, she'd gone from this sort of still, she's still in the academic world, she was running an organization and so she wanted to become a better leader and she talks about that that you know she was writing the book that she wanted to to read so that she could be a better leader Um, and the thing that i like about Brené's work is it's all research and evidence-based and so the dare to lease part is very much focused on how do you help people have courage because what we know that in organizations is people often step back from the conversations that they should step into. That if you want an innovative culture, if you want a healthy culture, you actually need to have leaders and employees who are willing to be courageous. And when you're courageous, that means you're able to give and receive feedback. You're able to know how to be resilient. So if something doesn't work out, you know how to work your way through it that you know how to build trust, you know how to live to your values. So the program is it was originally a two-day program, it's now a three-day program. Mm-hmm. And from her research, what she knows is that courage as a skill set, similar to when I to what when I was talking to about leadership before, courage is something that is learnable. Mm-hmm. So it is a skill that you can learn, you can teach it, it's measurable. And so that's what we do as we go through the three days is really build courage skills so that the people at the end of it can walk away with a better understanding of themselves, a better understanding of how they can show up in the world, in the workplace, and then feel equipped to have the conversations that they need to have, to put ideas out there. But also when things go wrong, to know what's the process that they can use to kind of dust themselves off and then go okay this hasn't worked but what am I learning from this and what will I do next time
0: that must have been an incredible course to go through yourself to then teach did you take a lot away from it
1: I did I did and look you know back in the days when we were allowed to travel um it was in San Antonio in Texas um and I still remember this because I I went there by myself and um a day before the course, I get a, a, an SMS from a friend of mine to say, you're posting Instagram pictures of yourself in San Antonio. She goes, you can only be here for the same reason as me. So I actually end up being in San Antonio with a friend of mine, which was not planned, but was just delightful. Um, and so, yes, it was three and a half days with Brené getting trained in the program. Um, you know, you had to meet a certain criteria to be accepted into the program. You then did the accreditation. And there's look, there's accreditation that we have to do every year to kind of maintain our certification. So as a certified Dare to Lead facilitator, I'm able to run the program. That then means people who attend the program are able to say that they've been trained in the Dare to Lead way. Look, it's a really... I love running the course. I did my um, my most recent one in March this year. The next one is in October, which sounds like a long time away, but it was, you know, when you start looking at days, you kind of go, ah, oh, right, yes, this year is going very, very quickly. But look, it's a really, it's just you always work with a great group of people. You know, the program can be run in-house. The public programs that I've run mean you get a mix of people from all different industries and different professions and really interesting engaged and just fascinating conversations it's yeah it's awesome
0: it's the best kind of networking that isn't it because you're in a room of people that are all curious hungry to learn and it's not networking for networking's sake you're actually there with a role and a purpose
1: also, you're really building deep relationships with people because you're sharing stuff that's that, that has meaning and you're doing it in a way you that there's a lot of work that goes in at the front end to make sure that there's a space where people feel safe to share. And when people
0: share things that creates connection and it builds trust. I'm curious about the the helicopter view that you have with varying clients, with doing exec coaching one-on-one, with doing these huge conferences, which gives you this exposure to, to a broad spectrum of people. Is there certain trends, are there certain trends that you are seeing this year in 2021 that are coming off of COVID and and what we've been through? Uh, And do you, are there any trends that you see coming downstream furthermore from from this?
1: I I think everything works in cycles. And so, you know, obviously the biggest trend and the, um, the World Economic Forum did a survey of global economists to ask them, what do they see as the key sort of trends and changes that have been experienced over the past 12 months and out of those, which will have the longest impact in terms of how we work. And it looked at things like supply chain and technology shifts, because there's been massive you know, issues with supply chain. You know, Organisations overnight had to move from sort of almost like shop fronts to online, all of that kind of stuff. And what they were saying that they think will have the longest sort of impact is the whole work from home because it has fundamentally challenged prior notions of how work can work. I think that the issue that we've got at the moment is how do you get the best of breed? Because work from home is great for someone like me. You know, I've got a nice office. My little pooch is right beside me. Um, My husband's next door. Um, You know, but I was having a conversation with a friend last night and she said, you know, her office was her spare bedroom. She now can't have people over to stay because there's no extra room. She goes, you know, she looks at young people that they work with who are cohabitating with other people. There is no real space to work. So I think work from home means different things to different people. And it's not it's great for some people, not so good for others. And also when you first join an organization, it can be really hard to join when it's remote. So I think it's about finding how do you get that balance? How do you work through what do we as an organization need so that we can build the culture that we want, build the connection and the relationships that we want, still be productive, still create balance. And that looks different for everybody. And so what I've said to leaders is it's not one size fits all you need to sit down and have conversations with people and work out what are the parameters in which we want to work because the organization might have guidelines what works for each team member then what works for me as the leader and where's the sort of the you know is there a gap and where is their commonality and then talk to your team so you agree on what this new thing looks like um you know i know with um some of the clients that i'm working with they've said okay Two days a week, we're in on a Tuesday and we're in on a Thursday. Every other day, people can work from home if they want to, or they can come into the office. Um, you know, other organisations have been really sort of explicit, you know, Atlassian came out last week and said, we only expect to see you in the office four times a year. And I think what it has done as well, and so there's, you know, with every sort of downside, there's also upsides, is a lot of the tech companies are now saying work from anywhere. So if you are interested in working for other organisations that are global, there's now and prepared to work some interesting time zones there's lots of other things that you can do so i think there's some real benefits to this the caveat that sits in the back of my head is as a leader you need to pay more attention not less to how you lead when you're working in a remote environment
0: Mm. yeah and that really is the key point to this because i i'm speaking to so many companies that are grappling with this michelle you're absolutely right and there's it's interesting now the the kind of disconnect like I had someone interviewing last week and one of the leaders was going to be in the city the other was at home and the candidate really wanted to be face to face but they pulled the interview because they were like unless we can all be in the room it just won't work with the screen and I was going well actually this is this is how we need to operate now we need to get comfortable that the hybrid is just the way it's going to be and that's what will happen once everyone's on boarded and in there but it is very interesting that yeah some places just well, it's new right it's it's still very it new.
1: is and it's changing patterns of behavior mm. and then getting comfortable with does this pattern of behavior now work for us mm. so you know i was in sydney a couple of weeks ago and i was running a session 120 people in the room and it was like oh my god it's so good to be back in a room with a group of people and i look at that session and go yeah i could have run that online but it wouldn't have been as good because as a facilitator you feed off the energy of the people there was banter you know i'm you know roaming around the room with a microphone we can't do that online it's it's a different dynamic but then i've done lots of speaking gigs over the last 12 months online where that has been really engaged because what i find is people put in commentary through the chat box Whereas in a speech, when you're in a room, they're not going to ask, they don't tend to ask as many questions. So I think there's been some huge benefits out of all of this. But once again, it's be deliberate.
0: Mm. Do the
1: assessment. What's worked? What's not worked? What do we want to leave behind? What do we want to take forward? At the end of the day, it's your choice. Mm. But what works for you may not work for others.
0: Yeah, there's no one size fits all to this, is there? Definitely. Mm. With the conferences and your various forums, Michelle, what, what's next? What does your schedule look like for the rest of this year? Because I'm conscious you've got, I mean, I know you've got something on this Thursday. For listeners, you know, that are keen to having heard this, tap in or come and see you, what have you got planned? Well, apart from a holiday in a couple of weeks
1: to the Northern Territory, and I cannot wait. <laughs> most importantly <laughs> you know who knows may not come back <laughs> no, I will but the big thing to do is to register I, I share ideas every week so I have a weekly um insights blog that comes out and I share ideas through that so if people are interested in more go to the website register I've got an influence course on this um coming Thursday that at the moment is likely to be the only one for this year just with scheduling things um October is Dare to lead. Um, there will be other things that are coming in the back half of the year, but I'm sort of there's a big piece of work that I'm working on at the moment, which will sort of take up big chunks of my time until about the end of July. So look, there's always things on the go and a bit like with speaking gigs, I did a couple of speaking gigs last week and the week before, they they come in but they go onto my website. So if people are interested, just stay connected to my website and you'll get alerts come out as, as things change.
0: Great. And I'll put the website in the in the notes. For those that are say career changes, like my uh, going back to my husband using Career Leap, have you have you seen people this year go back to I, I imagine you can analyse the analytics, go back to that book with Future of Work and use the Career Leap framework. My husband's using it, he's a tradee and he's using it to pivot. Slightly and found really, really useful that the framework in there is really easy to apply. Yep. Have you seen an uplift? Yeah, I have. I look,
1: I think nothing makes me happier than when I get an email from someone who goes, I just used your book and it worked. I think, oh, yay, I didn't just, you know, randomly make up a framework that doesn't work. It's interesting. I was reading something the other day where they were saying that in the last 12 months, they're seeing the greatest increase, I think it was a Gartner report, greatest increase in intention to leave. So lots of people are looking. And I think it's interesting because, and it does depend on the sector that you're in, because, you know, we now have a very mixed economy in terms of some areas have bounced back really quickly and, you know, IT consulting roles, there's shortages, but in other sectors, they're still really struggling. So I think it does depend on what sort of sector you're in, but there's a lot of people who have had, you know, they look at the last 12 months and it hasn't been fun for them and they're like, I'm done. I need to get out and do something else. And so I'm seeing a lot of energy around what comes next and I think what they're doing this year as well is still sort of that little bit of uncertainty in the back of people's heads as to how the rest of the year is playing out and so I'm seeing people do the prep work now so that they're ready for either later this year early next year to really then make that shift
0: yeah it's definitely true I think people this year are doing interesting things I think next year will be yeah much more risk and actually they're laying the foundations this year potentially they are
1: they are because and look it depends on you know, the level that you're at, but often changing and making a shift like that, you know,
0: give yourself six to 12 months, you're not going to do it in a couple of weeks. And you've quoted quite a few different kind of websites and places that you've sought um, information from. Are there any podcasts or books that you would frequently kind of refer to or go to for sources of information to recommend? Look, there's heaps. I
1: am, the one thing that I do, and I often say, I find this really helpful. I have a separate email address that is just for alerts and information. So it does not clog up my Michelle at Michelle Gibbings and, you know, I've got Michelle at Change Meridian because of my original company name. And then my kind of trading emails, you know, that's what I deal with clients on. But all my research, all my newsletter subscriptions goes to a separate email.
0: Mm.
1: And that then means I can choose when I engage in those emails and when I read them because otherwise what happens is you get a lot of noise in your main email traffic and it can be distracting. So I do a couple of things. Um, I use Google Alerts. Um, they're fantastic. So find your topics that you're interested in. use Google Alerts. I use pocket. Um, I use things like flipboard. I also subscribe to a number of different newspapers. So, you know, I read the New York Times, the Financial Review, I read the Age, because once again, you want to get a breadth of news. Um, and then there are probably some, you know, key academics that I follow as well. Yeah, so Adam Grant, David Destino, um, um, I do follow Arianna Huffington's work as well. So I think, you know, find the academics that you like Find the research sources that you like and follow those because what you want to do is you need a breadth of information and not just information that is targeted purely and solely in your field. So Mm -hmm. I read stuff that's, you know, from brain science research papers and I read stuff from Nature magazine and things that can seem slightly left of centre, but I'm capturing ideas, I'm capturing stories, and I then use Evernote. So Evernote is my, um, like my database repository. So I tag articles, I keep things because then you'll get someone who will ring you about something and you just go to Evernote, you go, oh, here's all
0: these new ideas that came out the other day. Yeah, I use Pocket. I haven't used Evernote actually, so I'll have a look at that. Thank you. Again, yeah. your hunger to learn is really apparent, Michelle, it comes through. Thank you ever so much. I know, yeah, how busy you are. And it's so, so lovely to speak to you on this forum. It's been amazing to have you in the room in the past. And yeah, I'm looking forward to reading Bad Bosses and yeah, continuing to to catch up. For those that are listening, is there anything else that you want to add? Any advice that you want to give that we haven't covered? We've covered quite a lot today.
1: You ask awesome questions. So thank you so much for all the prep that you've done. Look, I've seen people... Have fun. Life's an adventure and don't have regrets. And when I say that, you know, that doesn't mean that if you've done something wrong, you don't say sorry. Um, but, it, you know, I often see people who say, about, oh, you know, but maybe I should have done this and maybe I should have done that. Like I go, wasted emotion. You've made the decision. Move on. You can learn from the decision because that learning is a really important part of growing. But there's that's reflection, not rumination. And it's very easy to get sucked into ne- negative energy and to ruminate about stuff. And that's unhealthy. And then the other thing through all of this, and I always remember the um, Amy Poehler um, quote, and it's in Leap, and I love it, where she says, and I'm going to paraphrase, I won't get the quote um, precise, but she says, you know, your career isn't going to love you back. It's not going to remember to send you a birthday card and wish you happy birthday. Actually, it's going to, you know, ignore you, sidestep you, bypass you, and eventually almost like, you know, delete you. And so what she's saying is your career is only one part of your life. And it's really important to look at everything you do and all the choices that you make in the context of your life. And so even when you're thinking about it through a leadership lens, like what's the legacy that you want to leave behind? What's, how do you want to impact people? How do you want to help them? When you're thinking about your career choices, well, what does that mean for the lifestyle that you want, your family, your friends, all of that kind of stuff? And I think that's really important because if you make decisions in isolation, you can get somewhere and then wake up one day and go, How did I get here. This isn't where I want to be
0: very very profound place to leave it michelle thank you it's incredibly inspiring
1: oh. oh thank you and thank you so much for having me on i really enjoyed the conversation
0: thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode i hope that this one reignited a spark of motivation within you or inspired you to embark on that project you've been wanting to start if you found this one useful please don't forget to share it with your network to spread the word Take care and thank you for listening to Change It with me, Eloise Seidelin.